Turn in your Bibles with me, please, to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Thank you again, Holly and Celia Beth. John chapter 2, as you find verse 12, if you can and will, would you stand with us, please? We have a few that are out today. I'm thinking about the boxes not being here. We have prayed for so many. You be sure and pray for Brother David and Miss Peggy. I'm sure they would be here if they could. John chapter number 2, I'm interested in Christ's cleansing of the temple. It's commonly referred to this event that we'll focus on this morning, his cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. John 2, beginning in verse 12 to the end of the chapter, the Bible says, After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said, uh, said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now that's key. They believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Thank you for standing. Christ cleanses the temple. 21, this makes our 21st look at the life of Christ. After his temptation, this is the actual, uh, actually the third event that we're noticing after he comes forth from the wilderness, the Judean wilderness, where he is tempted of the devil and he fasts for some 40 days and 40 nights. Remember the first event we looked at was his uh, first five. Um, there was Andrew and John. There was Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And after that, last Sunday, we looked at Christ's first miracle, which is recorded in the first 11 verses of the chapter that we've just read from. Christ cleanses the temple in Jerusalem. God be our helper. I want to speak under three headings. I'm interested, it easily divides, this section easily divides into three. Verses 12 to 17, the movements of Christ, the movements uh, in Christ's cleansing of the temple. Verses 18 through 22, the message regarding Christ's temple or the resurrection of his own body. He speaks of his own resurrection. It's amazing how these people uh, in their darkened state misinterpret what he has to say to them. He said, they said, we want to see a sign. And he said, stick around. And they wanted to know what he's talking about. He said, stick around. He said, destroy this temple. Crucify it. Beat it. Mistreat it. Take the life from it. 
He said, in three days, I'll come back. And, but they misinterpreted that, didn't they? And then in verses 23 through 25, the moving of Christ from the superficiality of his observers that day moves from those who superficially are drawn to him. Verses 12 to 17, the movements in Christ's cleansing of the temple. Verses 12 and 13, there's his movements in travel, getting there. And then in verses 14 through 17, his movements as recorded here in the temple. First of all, his movements in travel, verses 12 to 13. Of course, we won't go back and read it, but in verses 1 through 11, Jesus has just left Cana of Galilee. He's just performed his first miracle uh, after becoming man. Uh, that is the, the turning of water into wine uh, at Cana of Galilee. And so he's just left Cana. Then you look with me at verse number 12. He's going to spend a few days after he leaves Cana in Galilee. He's going to spend a few days in Capernaum, which, by the way, will be his home base for the majority of his ministry. Capernaum will be. Verse number 12 says, after this, that is, after the event at the wedding at Cana of Galilee, verse number 12 says, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. Jesus has shown his glory, right? Right off the bat when he performs his first miracle, performs his glory, uh, displays his glory, if you will, in, in showing his deity, his authority, in being able to turn water into wine. And there's no mistaking, this is the Son of God. This is deity. This is God the Son. This is Israel's Messiah. This is the promised one. He's displayed his glory. As a matter of fact, in the first chapter, John would write about him in verse number 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He said, we watched him day in and day out, and we saw his glory. We saw his splendor. We saw his majesty. We saw his godness. We knew he was dead. And so after performing this miracle and attending this event, uh, here he goes to Capernaum. In his company is his mother Mary. His half-brothers, according to the text, were traveling with him away from the wedding and into Capernaum. And then, and then his first disciples, those first five, they travel with him. And they go to Capernaum for just a few brief days prior to his first public appearance in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Holly was talking about Jerusalem. You go up from everywhere to get to Jerusalem. It is the city set on a hill. I'll never forget when we come out of that tunnel, and I know you remember it right now. It's the white city made out of sandstone. They were playing old Jerusalem, old Jerusalem over the tour bus. David Barnett stood up. He was about three or four uh, seats ahead of us on the left-hand side of the bus, he stood up and one preacher from the area that's mocked him and made fun of him because of his hearing and his speech impediment, he jumped up crying and throwing both hands and got just about that close, his nose to that man's cheek, that preacher's cheek. He said, make fun of me now, preacher, make fun of me now. He said, I'm coming back to this city one of these days. Go ahead and make fun of me if you want to, but you're going to have to do it right now. I'm telling you, one of these days we're going to the city of God. Can I get a witness? In verse number 13, in verse number 13, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the observance of Passover. You notice verse 13 says, and the Jews' Passover, and it used to be God's Passover. 
But it's become the Jews' Passover now, like most traditional things do religiously. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. If you leave Jerusalem, you go down. If you go to Jerusalem, you go up uh, to get to Jerusalem. He's going there. He arrives in Jerusalem for the observance of the Passover. The Passover feast uh, would last uh, some seven days. Passover, of course, was a time of remembrance. It had come and gone all these centuries. And for this millennial and a half, it's uh, come and gone. Um, the Passover commemorated that time when Egyptian, when in Egyptian bondage, the Israelites were set free through the blood of the Passover lamb, where that blood was Um, where that blood was shed from that innocent sacrifice. And its blood was taken and put on the two side posts on the upper uh, little of of the door at the entrance of the the Israelites' homes. And when the Lord passed through and he sent his deaf angel, he's not looking for the home nor the size of it. He's looking for blood in somewhat of a cross form. That's what he's looking for. And those behind that blood... Uh, The eldest of the home, they were spared. Their lives were spared. But judgment came to the homes of the Egyptians. Even Pharaoh lost his eldest son in judgment. You remember that that the Israelites got out of the land of Egypt. And the Bible's even careful to tell us in Exodus chapter number 12, the dogs didn't even bark. When over 2 million, when 2 million plus Jews got up and left the land of Egypt, the dogs were not even disturbed. God gave peace about getting up and getting out of Egypt. But it was a time of remembrance. It commemorated the setting free of the Israelites from Egypt and from Egypt's Pharaoh, which was their king, and from those many taskmasters that they had to face and labor under uh, all of those years. And so annually the Passover was observed by the Israelites over uh, over what God had done for them in the past. A lot of years ago up at Myrtle, I, I remember Dr. Lockie, Brother James Lockie, who's now with the Lord. He talked about how that you should never get over what God has done for you and where he's brought you from. He told about a little boy in a home that was adopted by a wealthy family. And in the morning, one of the maids of the house would prepare breakfast and he would go down for breakfast. And after eating breakfast, up the steps he would go, down under his bed he would go and pull out a shoebox. It had his old clothes and shoes he was wearing when he was adopted into the family and she wondered what he was scurrying back up the steps for every morning it just like a ritual so she watched him take that old shirt out and those pants and and his socks and his shoes and roll them back up and put them in the shoe box and back under the bed and so she asked him she said why are you doing this every morning he said i don't ever want to forget where i was when my father when he came to where i was to get me i don't ever want to forget where he has brought me from, and I'm the same way. I never want to forget. Passover was a time of remembrance for the Jews. It would happen just nearly about this time of our calendar year. Passover, it was the busiest time in the Jewish calendar for the city of Jerusalem. Many believe when Jesus cleansed the temple, as many as two and a half million Jews were present in the city of Jerusalem at the time. Josephus, the Jewish historian, would write in, A.D. 65, that year, A.D. 65, that some uh, 255,600 lambs were slain for Passover week. That was in A.D. 65. If there were 10 people, 10 worshipers represented per lamb, that puts the attendance in A.D. 65 pushing 3 million. 
that would have been in the city. So when Jesus performs this act of cleansing in the temple, probably about two and a half million people were present, Jews, that is, present in the city. The movements in Christ's cleansing of the temple, his movements in travel, verses 12 and 13, he's just left Cana, spent a few days in Capernaum, and now he arrives in Jerusalem for the observance of the Passover. Then the movements in the temple, verses 14 to 17, Notice with me, if you will, the scene he arrives to in verse number 14. The scene he arrives to. The Bible says in verse 13, the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Watch verse 14. And he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. When he arrives and makes his way into the temple, he finds a polluted religious system now. It's a corrupt Judaistic system, religious system. Worship is so digressed among the Jews. It's become about money and, and exchanging now. He arrives with his disciples in the outer court, which was also known as the court of the Gentiles. You'll notice those that he met with. Verse 14 says, and found in the temple those. There are those that he met with. Who are those? He said those that sold oxen and sheep and doves. They're the sellers of merchandise that he meets with. Can you imagine the scene? It would be like being in the temple. If we were in the temple in the foyer and beyond was the outer court. He arrives in the foyer of the church and there there are oxen, there are sheep, there are, are doves that are in cages, there are stalls that are built. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine the stench? Can you imagine the grief in the great heart of the Son of God? The outer court is where this would have taken place. One has written that the outer court of the temple, of Herod's temple, would have, would have taken up about 14 acres of space. The entire temple itself would cover about 20 acres. And in 14 acres, there are all these cages and these money changers and all that's taken place. The blading of the sheep, the chattering of the birds, the tussle of those trying to secure and buy their sacrifice and There's the lowing of the oxen. There's the moving of the animals as people would buy them and then take them to be sacrificed so that they could offer their Passover sacrifice. There are those people of merchandise, those of merchandise, and there are the changers of money. Verse number 14 says, And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. What these changers of money were is just what you think they were. The Lord willing, if we live and the Lord doesn't take place, four of us, at least four of us, are trying to make plans to go back to England next year. We'll fly into Gatwick. We'll take the train uh, into Union Station. And at Union Station, the Lord willing, we'll exchange our American currency. Instead of dollars and cents, which you can't spend there, we'll exchange at the exchange rate um, um, uh, pounds and pence. We'll, We'll get their currency. You see, back in these days, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin and the high priest, they controlled what was going on in the temple, and they wouldn't take Egyptian money. There were many Jews that would travel from Alexandria to Egypt, which was heavily populated by Jews, and they would travel from Syria and other places. They would bring their currency, but it could not be offered in the temple. It was considered to be unclean, so they had to exchange their money into Jewish currency in order to give their half shekel that was expected to be paid every year at the temple at Passover. 
And as a result, as they would exchange their money, they would do so for a fee, a heavy fee. There's the scene he arrives to. There's the religious system that is in place. Again, it was controlled by the Sanhedrin, the temple, and this whole system, this monetary system. The Sanhedrin was the religious high court of the day. It was controlled during Christ's day by the Sadducees. There were more Sadducees on the Sanhedrin than there were, than there were Pharisees. But the, but the Sanhedrin court was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees were the conservative. They were ultra-conservative. The Sadducees were the liberals. They were ultra-liberal. The Pharisees were legalists. They had no mercy. If the law said it, they couldn't keep the law, but they put on pretense and were hypocrites. But if the law said it and you're guilty, let's just put you to public shame. The Pharisees, you can remember this by their attitude, they were not fair, you see. They showed no mercy. But then there were the Sadducees, which were the liberals of the Sanhedrin court. And again, they outnumbered the Pharisees in Christ's day. The Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angelic beings. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And you can remember the Sadducees, by this little play on their name, they were sad, you see. Sad for those who do not believe in the resurrection. Sad existence for those who do not believe in our supernatural God. Say amen right there. The co-reigning high priests were Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas. And, and to, to make for modern conveniences, what they did was they helped to develop the system to where uh, they, could, uh, they could contract local shepherds uh, to raise lambs to be brought to the temple for temple sacrifice during Passover. And what they would do is not only contract with them for a fee of what they would sell, but they would contract for them for a stall in the outer court where they would come and they would, they would board their sheep till they'd sell out. Then they'd run more in there. And, of course, Annas and Caiaphas got to cut off everything. They got to cut off the stall. They got to cut off the rent space. They got to cut from the shepherd. They got to cut from the sale of the doves, from the oxen, and from the sheep. They felt like this would be a convenience. In other words, if you had to travel from Egypt and you're trying to bring your lamb... Um, if you get all the way there and it's rejected by one of the priests, then you've got to turn around and buy a lamb anyhow. So they'd save their money. They'd go to Jerusalem. They'd buy. They'd purchase. Many of them would purchase uh, their lamb and then, and then offer it. It all became a racket, just a religious money-making enterprise. As a matter of fact, it was called, the system was called Annas, the high priest, Annas Bazaar. Um, because he got so wealthy off of it. He and Caiaphas got uh, so wealthy off of it. They extorted money from travelers. Many of them, if you came from Galilee and you brought your lamb, you can find no blemish on it. Uh, often what happened, many writers write of it, often what happened is you would bring your lamb for sacrifice, a priest would, would search it, pulling the wool back, and point out a blemish on it and say, we have to reject your lamb. And then you, you knew you're not going to go all the way back to Galilee and get another lamb and bring it to the temple. So what you'll do is you've got to buy a lamb, and then they'll offer to give you, let's just say, 10 cents, but it'll cost you $5 to buy their lamb. And then they're going to turn around and sell your lamb to another worshiper that comes into Jerusalem. Everyone knew what was going on. They'd bring their own money from Egypt and other places, bring their own money to be exchanged at high exchange rates. No wonder... 
No wonder Jesus, no wonder he would say in Luke 19, verse number 46, where the Bible says, saying unto them, it is written, my house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Can you imagine how that must have grieved the heart of the Son of God? I could spend the rest of the day, I think, talking about schemes I've learned up through the years in churches. There's a church up in the state of Tennessee that many years ago it got uncovered. There was a family of successful business people, and they were using their church. never could get a preacher, and then when they'd get one, they couldn't keep one. And it was later discovered by a preacher, a young preacher, didn't have any better sense and go to investigate what was going on with the money around there. They had tons of money coming through the treasure, but they couldn't seem to keep anything. They wasn't sporting missions, and the light bill surely wasn't that high, come to find out. The church was simply used. It was built by the family years ago and was used as a tax shelter. Can you imagine such? Schemes. This is a scheme that's taking place. I shared with you some years back when Benny Hinn, when he secured the pyramid and and advertised that he was going to be there and there'd be him preaching in this great healing service, his agents failed to negotiate the concessions. So after the contract was signed to rent the pyramid in Memphis, his agents tried to call back and renegotiate, but it's already signed, the contract signed. Show you how shrewd of a businessman he is. He got up at the beginning of that evening service, so to speak, and said God had put it on his heart to fast uh, throughout the event that evening, man, uh, and they virtually shut down the concessions. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of churches family-owned and family-operated. You know that as well as I do. A lot of churches are run by a click. And people have no idea where the money goes or anything else. The church is the people. It's the body of believers that make up the assembly. And you do well when you tell folk, uh, well, our church, the church we belong to is Charity Baptist Church. And, and uh, we always, always want to be on the up and up in what we do. You ought to be able to trace where the money goes, right? And there ought not be two or three with the whole say-so around here. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons why we implemented the, uh, the deacons is because it's biblical, number one. But number two, it gives some responsibility and some accountability around here. I know of a number of situations in the church where I'm thinking about churches that I'm thinking about. If they didn't have a deacon, a, uh, uh, some deacons in the church, they'd been a preacher would have got away with embezzling monies and various other things. Doesn't hurt anything for somebody giving account of themselves. But here, Annas is running the show. Filthy rich. Caiaphas is helping to run the show. Filthy rich. Wealthy uh, because of it all. The scene he arrives to, the religious system that is in place, and then the scourge he makes. Verse number 15, as he walks into this scene, he knows what's going on. Verse number 15 says he takes the time to make this scourge. Verse 15 says, and when he had made a scourge of small cords. Now he's about to purge the temple. He's about to purge this outer court uh, of these, uh, these merchandisers that are in the temple. And again, he displays his authority as he does this. Now, we do know there was a remnant in Jerusalem that still believed God, still believed the Word of God, still had a hunger for truth. Um, we met, you'll remember, early on in the life of Christ. You remember we, we learned while he was an infant when Joseph and Mary would go to the temple And it would be Anna, an aged woman, and Simeon, the old priest, the old man of God. They get to see the Christ babe. And they both are faithful. They've been faithful 
to the temple, been faithful to God. But now listen, there was a large element, a large element in Jerusalem. It had just digressed to mere formalism. I hope that your walk with Christ is not just something in the brain. I, I hope it is something that, as is, is I referred to during our fellowship time, I hope your walk with Christ is about Christ. I hope it's not about some mere formality of just reading a few verses of Scripture a day and bowing your head and saying, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I hope the living Lord is a part of your life. He takes time to make a scourge, and he's going to drive everyone out of the temple. Verse 15, and he made a scourge of small cords. He drove them out, all out, excuse me, drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew uh, the tables. Do you know many believe this is one of the greatest miracles of Christ? You say, why? Well, number one, because of the courage it took. Those old saints, such as Simeon and Anna and others that I referred to, they knew what was wrong with the system, but nobody could do anything about it. And here comes along Jesus of Nazareth, and he runs them all out with a small cord. And then many believe it's a miracle in itself in the sense that there was no attempt on his life. When he did what he did. You mess with a man's pocketbook and you'll rile him up. And that's what he's done. He's messed with their money. The Bible doesn't say um, that, uh, that uh, the, the, the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that money's the root of all evil, but the love of it. For the love of money, many have turned their backs on business partners. Many have left their husband or their wives for the love of money. Some have because they loved their money so much and lost it, took a gun to themselves. All over the love of money, which perishes. We often say it at a funeral, well, there won't be a U-Haul following us to the cemetery. But in one sense, if you'll read James chapter number 5, verses 1 to 6, uh, your love for the things of this world is going to stand in judgment against you one of these days. It will be summoned as to our love for all this. Notice a statement made. In verse number 16, he makes a forceful statement. And said unto them, he takes this cord, he makes this cord, he drives them out, verse 15. Verse 16, and said unto them that sold doves, take, the, uh, take these things hence. And the idea is he drove the oxen out, he drove the sheep out, he drove the money changers and those that were selling these animals, but he didn't do that with the doves, and we don't know why. He said, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Say what you will, but here is the angry Christ. He has a right to be angry. It's righteous indignation. At the wedding of Cain of Galilee, they had no wine. Here as he comes to the temple, the house of God has no glory in it. If we'll be real honest, you, you can go and sit in on the service and, and you know, as a preacher, I, let me say it like this. We preachers talk about this often, sit around hotel rooms or prophets chambers and churches and other places. You can tell in about five to ten minutes behind the pulpit whether or not a pastor is opening the word of God around there. And you can tell right quick when you go sit down in a church whether or not God's got his hand upon the place. That doesn't mean it isn't dead as 4 o'clock in the morning sometimes around here. It's because of how some of you sleep on Saturday night. Say amen right there. There are seasons we all face in the church house. There's no glory in the temple now. No glory. I couldn't help but think about sitting at my desk. I thought about uh, there in the Old Testament, the wife of Phinehas. She gives birth and then she dies. 
you remember her husband has just she's just got word that her husband and her brother-in-law has been has been slain in battle and, and her father-in-law the priest has fallen over backward broke his neck and he died and what has brought such startling revelation to her is is as bad as her husband died and her brother-in-law and her father-in-law as bad as that is worse yet the philistines have come to do battle with the israelites and have taken the ark of the covenant which represents the presence of god and she names the little boy just before she dies she names him ichabod the bible says in first samuel 4 verse 20 through 22 and about the time of her death the women that stood by her said unto her fear not for thou hast borne a son but she answered not neither did she regard it she's so startled she's so shocked verse 21 of that chapter says and she named the child ichabod saying the glory is departed from israel because the ark of god was taken and because her father-in-law and her husband and she said the glory is departed from israel for the ark of god is taken may god help us to be people of the book and people of prayer and and i want to say what you hear me say no doubt every sunday and probably every wednesday god owes us nothing around here and the least we can do is find our place below him and before him in humility and with grateful hearts that occasionally he's pleased to pass by, to move upon us, to give us something that will, that will help our life. He makes a forceful statement. He fulfills prophecy in this. Watch verse 17. This has been pre-written. The Bible says in verse 17, And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The disciples watched Christ. He was not like some little, if you'll let me say it like this, like some little sissy just pushing over the money changers' tables. He took the cord and he drove them out of there. And they saw his zeal having it eat him up. That his father's house has digressed into what it is digressed. Psalm 69, verse number 9 is what the disciples remembered. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. So Jesus takes it upon himself to cleanse the temple of the religious racketeers. Jesus does what he does. He does it for the sake of holiness. God says, be ye holy. You say, I want to be like God. God says, be ye holy. Watch what you say. Watch how you act. Be ye holy, even as I am holy. The Father is holy. God the Son is holy. God the Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. In the book of Ephesians, with a little h, describing his character. He is holy. And the church ought to be a place that reminds us of the holiness of God. And first pastor at Miss Denise Graham, I, I, I have great respect for Miss Denise. You could set your clock on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night by Denise Graham, her old gray van. And hauled all them kids around in 4-H shows all over Mississippi. I did as I've done here. I'd stand out on the front porch, pick that habit up early. Just about five minutes before Sunday school, here comes that gray van down the hill. Miss Denise, Jeremy, Jamie, and the girl, Deanna. Here they come getting out. You can set your watch by her on Sunday night and on Wednesday night. I wasn't there long till she come up. She always come up with a smile. If you've ever been around the Graham Dairy Farm, she's the lady that Occasionally, you'd see take him, take those young calves and throw them over his shoulder and walk them up to the barn, or bottle feed them, shaking her hands about like shaking hands with a man that 
does mechanic work. You can tell he uses his hands and his arms regular. One of the sweetest ladies I've ever met in my life, her mother-in-law, Miss Blanche Graham. Miss Denise and I were talking one Sunday morning. The kids went in, and I said, Now, Whitney, you know Miss Denise very well, don't you? Probably spent time in her home, haven't you? Precious, precious lady. She told me about Miss Blanche. Said years ago, said, said men would stand out front of the church and they'd smoke and they'd throw the cigarette butts down. And said it broke her heart. Said it broke Miss Blanche's heart. And said she'd get right in the middle of them. She felt like that was as disrespectful as if a kid took, a, uh, took some bubble gum, popped it in, in, in their mouth, and wadded up the, uh, the wrapper and threw it on. He, she, she couldn't understand what the difference was. I can't either. And said Miss Blanche would, would embarrass those men. And said she'd get out, out there sometimes, get down on her knees, picking up them cigarette butts and putting them in her hand. And she'd take them, put them in the garbage can, and have to wash her hands with soap and water to get the smoke smell off of her. And said she'd tell those men, this is God's house. You ought to treat it different. It's God's house. And said those men, out of shame for how they're treating God's house, said the dear sainted lady brought conviction in their lives. Why does Jesus do what he does? Why does he cleanse the temple? It's because it's God's house. Herod had built it, but God had sanctified it and used it. Not only does he do it for the sake of holiness, number two, he does it for the sake of worship. That place was set aside for worship. It was a place of worship. Not for playing bingo, but for worship. Y'all may get enough of me this morning, but some of these men's meetings that are going on where they're chasing one another with chainsaws, grown men down the, on a Friday night down, the, down the, the middle aisle of the sanctuary and giving out door prizes to grown men. Look, in 20 years from now, I won't be living. Some of you that are remember me even bringing it up. See what effect that's going to have on churches roundabout. To use a sanctuary for something other than worship. What Jesus does here is for the sake of testimony. There is a movement. It's been, as far as I'm aware, it's been a movement that's been uh, propagated now for about five years. Where men, good men, are standing and saying there is no such thing as God's house. That we are God's house. I beg to differ with that scripturally. There's always been a place that God has met with his people. Always. Listen to some verses of scripture now, listen to what Jesus said. Now, Jesus said, here in our text, Jesus said in verse number 17, verse number 16, he said, make not my father's house. He said, this is my father's house and the house of merchandise. Listen to Psalm 27, verse number 4. The Bible says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. Uh, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Psalm 65, verse number 4, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of the holy temple. How many times have you come to church and heard me or maybe Brother Marvin years ago quote from Psalm 122, verse number 1, which says, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, These things write unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. 
<laughs> Preachers all over are going to quote from Hebrews 10.25 today. Not forsaking this sending of ourselves together as the man of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. God's always had a meeting place. He met with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He met with Cain and Abel to receive the sacrifices they would bring. Jacob met with God at Bethel, which means house of God. He used the tabernacle as a central place of worship. He used the temple in the Old Testament. The Jews in the 400 silent years, the inner testament period, the synagogues were erected where the scriptures were read and they felt that there is where they met with the Lord. And ever since about the 4th century, beyond Christ's resurrection, buildings have been going up all over the globe where people meet at what we call God's house. Can I get a witness right there? place to be a place of holiness it's to be a place of testimony it's to be a place of worship what jesus does in cleansing the temple he didn't just have to do it he had to do it again as a matter of fact john records this cleansing in john chapter number two at the beginning of christ's ministry matthew mark and luke toward the end of their gospels will record another time that he'll go into the temple and he'll cleanse it again you know it doesn't hurt us to stop and evaluate our walk with christ does it doesn't hurt us to stop and do that, evaluate our walk with Christ, our time in the Word. Can I ask you here this morning, do you spend time in His Word? You have time for everything else. Do you spend time reading the Word? You ever mull it over? You ever meditate upon it? You ever bring it back up? You read everything else. Do you read the Word? You read Sports Illustrated, Guns Digest, and... Filled in stream, you read everything else. Do you ever take time to read the Word? Do you? You say, oh, it's not important. You can't read your Bible and come away with that. How many of you remember the Perham family? You remember those little children afflicted because their moms and dads were drug addicts? Thinking about Josh, he just had his birthday. He's a middle-aged man now. He wasn't supposed to be able to walk, let alone read or talk or sing. Miss Linda got to reading from the book of James to those. Remember, they had two naturally born children then had ten special needs adopted children. And they came to this church. They came to churches all over the country. And they would sing and they would quote scripture and they were such a blessing. Some of them are now married and got homes of their own. Miracles in themselves. God took a woman with a burden. They took natural measures, natural steps, or took steps surgically to prevent having children. Then God saved Brother Ernie, then saved Miss Linda, and they decided they needed to help other children that were neglected, and they chose special needs children. God took the Word of God. Miss Linda would read, and she would read, and she would read, and she would read, and she would read until finally there was a calming effect in those children's lives. Y'all remember how some of them would walk to the front? And Brother Ernie was always careful to mention, this is not a sideshow today. This is not a freak show. We're not at a carnival. We're at a church. And I want you to see what the Word of God can do in a life. You remember Josh? You remember how he'd walk? He'd give his testimony. He'd quote a verse of Scripture. Then he'd say, but don't feel sorry for me. A kid that the world wanted to drop off at a clinical place to experiment on his little body all his life. 
God took the word of God, ministered to it. Some of you are aware, some of you are not. Brother Don Savile, our friend, he's been a friend to this church. He had a daughter by the name of Tabitha. They wanted, they wanted he and Miss Sue to sign over rights and send her little infant self down to a home in the state of Louisiana. They were going to experiment on her. Try to help her. It's under the guise of trying to help her. And they said, no, we'll take her home. We'll help her. We'll love her. You could call down there. She'd almost get spooked when she'd answer the phone. She'd say, who is this? And you'd say who it was. And she'd say, Daddy, Mama. She loved to pick two or three preachers that I know that she would, uh, she would answer the phone. And she loved them, and they loved her, and she was a delight. You ever hear Brother Sable and Miss Sue talk about having more interest on the other side than they do over here? That's what they're talking about. That baby girl that lived into her 30s. Brought such joy to their life. The world said, put her in a home. We've got doctors who wants to try things out on her. God blessed that home with that little child. How about you walk with Christ today? Bible reading, time and prayer. How about sin? Got anything in your life you got covered up? Let me ask you a question. What's worse today, my open sin? Or what you got covered up behind the scenes none of us know about? God sees it all, doesn't it? Doesn't hurt us to go back and visit our own walk with Christ. Notice the message regarding Christ. I'll be brief with this. We'll bring this to a close. Notice the message regarding uh, not, only the, not only the movements of Christ cleansing of the temple, but the message regarding Christ's temple or his body, the resurrection of his body, verses 18 to 22. Verse 18, you'll find that there are those who challenge his authority. Look at verse number 18. Then answered the Jews. This is after the cleansing, after he's run them all out of there. After he took the doves and put them in the owner's hands and said, get them out of here. After he turned over the money changers' tables. The Bible says in verse number 18, then answered the Jews and said unto him, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Who do you think you are? You'll notice verse number 19. He's going to verify who he is. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They said, We, we, need, you, we need your registration ID. And again, as we said earlier, he said, Stick around a while. I'm going to give it to you. Notice the Jews. They further confront him. Verse number 20. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. Of course, it's called Herod's temple. And it did take 46 years to build it. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? They're scorned. Notice verse 21 and 22. The Bible says, But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, they remembered this. They put it together. They made sense of it all. Verse 22. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. The movements of Christ's cleansing of the temple. The message regarding Christ's resurrection and the moving of Christ from a crowd that was steeped in the superficiality of the moment. Look at verses 23 to 25. Then I want to read three verses of scripture beyond this. And I'll bring the service to a close. But watch this. Verse 23 and following. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day. Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, 
because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You know what that simply means? That would be akin to making a statement similar to this. Jesus knows today of this number who's saved and who's lost. Now, he knows. If you're saved today, he knows it, and you know it. But if you're not saved today, he knows it, and you know it. Listen to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he said. He said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Listen to what many is going to say to him. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Didn't we do this for you, Lord? We did this. We preached in your name. And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, you didn't do it for me. You did it for you. Do you know him today? He's the Christ that's interested in his house, interested in his temple. He's interested in his work. Do you know him? If you don't know him, you can know him. If you do know him and your walk is not what it ought to be, it can be. What a gracious Lord we serve. I cut my teeth on preaching that would make you think that, um, now look, I'm not condoning sin, but would make you think, would lead you to believe that if there be something in your life that is amiss, God was just looking for the opportunity to take his cat of nine tails out and beat you from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. Do you know we serve a Savior who is gentle and lowly? Who receives his people? Who forgives our sins and is pleased to show mercy? Our Christ is the Christ that receiveth sinners, and we all qualify. He'll do to know, and he'll do to follow in life and in death. I had a funeral, and I will close with this. I had a funeral last Monday. A dear old Church of God lady, 93 years old, knew something about God. She bumped into God somewhere. I helped to try to confirm a, a young preacher so gifted in North Carolina, he and his wife, and, and we were bragging. I was talking to a man on the pulpit committee. We were, I was talking about their pastor. I preached in meetings with him and his, his wife. And I, I said this. I said, now, I'm not disparaging the preacher when I say what I'm thinking to say, but I, I said, I want to tell you something. I said, now, Kaylee bumped into God somewhere. I said, if that gal, if she ever surrenders to preach, I'll help ordain her, though I don't believe women preachers. And I said, if she ever writes commentaries, I'm buying them. I'm telling you, the gal bumped into God somewhere. And this dear saint that we held the funeral, helped with the funeral last Monday at Tudor, actually at Baldwin, she bumped into God somewhere. Dear old Church of God woman, you want to shout her bun down on top of her head. Just shout and praise God. 
I don't know what you women stick up there. Amanda's got two aunts, great aunts, aren't they? Torsi and Juanita. Old holiness women. Got God about them, though. I wish they was Baptists, too. They will be when they get to heaven. Know something about God, man. They know something about God. Juanita's skinny as a toothpick. Look like a broom handle. Don't ever crack a smile. Just this stoic. Look like a little old prune sitting over there. And there Juanita is. Just as jovial. Likes my beard, for those of you that don't. But I'm telling you, you can be in their presence in a matter of two or three minutes, and you know they know something about God. You can bump into God this morning. You can walk with God today. You can enjoy the presence of God in your life. The Christ that I'm preaching about desires to be your Christ. Do you know him? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Miss Angie is making her way to the piano.